This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary. Commercial subsidiary. Of the BBC. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. is back onto the nature reserve. It surrounds the estate. Yeah. And it's just so amazing because obviously it's a council estate, which is, I'd say, about half an hour to London by train, but then you're minutes away from the countryside, so you've got the best of both worlds. Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast, the podcast that lets you escape from the daily grind into the wide and wonderful natural world. I'm Emily Knight. It's just magical because you've got all the stresses of everyday life um, living on a council estate, and then you can step out of that into a magical, mysterious world full of wildlife. It's a hidden gem, isn't it? It is, it is. It's the first episode of a brand new series, and for this one, to ease you in, we're starting pretty close to home. Today, we're bringing you stories from our natural, or perhaps not so natural, habitat. From the bright lights of the big cities to the cool shade of an urban garden, we're starting our journey in human spaces and finding the animals that make it their home too. And we start our journey in a council estate, just outside of London, with these two. Hello, I'm Sue. Hello, I'm Jan. I can't tell you exactly where Jan and Sue live because it's a bit of a secret. Locally, everyone knows, but we don't want to draw outside attention, really, because there are unsavoury characters that are not as sympathetic to them as what we are, and we don't want to encourage poaching. They've got enough to cope with, they've got enough dangers as it is. They're out there on their own, aren't they? The air of mystery is necessary because Jan and Sue live with some pretty special neighbours. When their estate was built in the 1940s, it was built on land that until then had been part of the local nature reserve. The thing is, no one told the deer about the boundary changes. And at night, when the streets are dark and quiet, back they come. And the community are extremely passionate about they the are. deer. So we're all watching it, we're all monitoring yes, it. Yes, we are. Now I've lived here 38 years, and I think it's about the last five or six that they've really started coming right into mm. the community. They were always there, but they've started coming into the little streets mm. and yeah. About fortnights ago I was coming back for a malt with my dog and I could hear this noise. It was echoing all down the street, it was really loud. And I, I walked along the road and it was some deer and they were all banging their antlers together and it was so loud. It was really funny because I walked down the corner and they all stopped and they all looked at me and I went, can you be quiet? And they all looked at me and walked off. (laughs) It was really funny. It was quite comical. We've got one particular herd that are little rebels. (laughs) 
and they actually go on a stag party, so once a week. They just like venturing all over the uh, estate. They've actually been down to our local pub. Um, <laughs> Probably soon they'll be in the green grocers yes. picking out the yeah. lunch <laughs> 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 I'm seeing them every night. I've got uh, herds that come to me every single night. We've got over 300 fallow deer in the park. We've got munchak. They're very elusive. Yes. They're not very often seen. They're such lovely animals. They're oh. so gentle and... They've got big rubber noses and big brown <laughs> eyes and they're so pretty and they're yeah. so gentle considering oh, their size and those antlers. Yeah. They, they don't want to hurt anything, you no. know what I mean? They're just other than each other when they're magical. They really, are. You know, we're so lucky. And they don't do anyone any harm. They're not harmful in any way whatsoever, and they might eat a few plants in your garden. Yeah. But I mean, we can survive that. That's yeah. not going to kill you, you is it? Quite funny, don't I you? do, yes. Yeah. say, oh, the council are here, we're meant to cut the grass. <laughs> yeah, they're very cheeky, aren't mm, they? Yeah. They're trying to take my carrier bag and my carrots in oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> they come onto the local green. They're there right early. Sometimes they're there at four o'clock in the mm. afternoon. It's really worrying because of the road. Mm. It terrifies me, it does. The community of Herald Hill are pulling together to try and discourage them from yes. walking around the streets because if there was a traffic accident, a, a stag must wait oh, probably as much as a car, I would think. So, you know, that could cause a major accident. Yes, so, could injure somebody badly. Yeah. Their, their antlers alone. I never feed together. them in my street. No. I would never feed them away from the, the, the edge woods. of the woods. No. And I would never hand feed them. I no. could because they come right up to me, but I'd throw it because no, I don't... Right. They've got to have some fear of people because they're wild animals, aren't they? There are people in our society that uh, see them as a nuisance. The numbers, as I said, are, do seem to be increasing. So there probably will have to be some kind of deer management in the future. But I personally feel that they were here first and we're on their, yes. um, we're on their territory. So we need to respect that. It's a secret gem and we're going to protect it. Yes. We've yeah, we've got to, yes, be. got to protect it. If I was to say the word penguins, what do you see? You're probably picturing them huddling together on some desolate frozen landscape, somewhere cold and a long way away from humans. But not these guys. These are African penguins, also known as black-footed penguins or jackass penguins, for obvious reasons. They're pretty small, just over two foot tall, with these distinctive pink patches above their eyes, which help them stay cool in the hot sun of the South African coast. And unlike penguins in more isolated places, some of them are quite comfortable sharing the landscape with us. African penguins usually breed on islands to be protected from predators. So it's not very clever for an African penguin to breed on the South African mainland where you still get jackals, you get hyenas, you get caracals, you get leopards. So the two mainland colonies that we have in South Africa are actually in towns because basically the people in the towns protect them from wild 
predators. There's a pretty famous penguin colony who, in the early 80s, moved off their island home to start a new life in a busy tourist hotspot called Boulders Beach, right in the middle of Simonstown on the edge of Cape Town. They're a hit with the holidaymakers, but living alongside humans has its downsides. In Simonstown, a lot of birds lay their eggs in either private people's gardens that don't want the birds there or in areas where dogs would get to it or where they have to cross major roads. That's Dr. Kata Ludinia. I'm Kata Ludinia. I'm the research manager at Sankob. Sankob is the South African Foundation for the Conservation of Coastal Birds. And when it comes to the penguins, Sankob have their work cut out. We put Hendrith chicks out in the wild, we rehab all the injured birds, we release them back, we put nest boxes out in the colony. The problem is, African penguins are in trouble. From a population of millions at the turn of the century, at last count there's only 18,000 breeding pairs left. Um, we obviously find birds that have problems with pollution. Turns out that while these little birds make pretty good guests in our habitats, we're not quite so considerate when we visit them in theirs. Problem, either entanglement in fishing line or birds that swallow plastic. We trap them in nets, engulf them in oil spills. But most of all, we eat their food. Commercial fishing is big business in Cape Town. So all the fishing industries sit here, all the fish factories, everything. The seabird colonies are still on the west coast. The fish is now on the south coast. On the west coast, there's hardly any sardine left. They can only travel so far to find food for their chicks, then they just abandon them to save themselves, basically. Um, so we had years where they would pick up over 500, 600 chicks, basically starving next to their parents. I mean, we work with statisticians at the universities, and when we present them our data that we have on survival rates, they look at the number and say, sorry, from a mathematical point of view, the species should not exist anymore. We don't know how they still pull through. But there is a glimmer of hope. So the idea came up a few years ago that maybe we can help them set up a colony on the mainland, on the south coast, to basically put a predator-proof fence around kind of a headland at Dirup, which is a national park, so the predators can't come. And then they're going to try to basically attract penguins. But how do you persuade a penguin to up sticks and move to a new colony? you might need a little help from this woman. What we've had to do is try and get inside the heads of penguins to see why they would choose our colony over others. That's Christina Hagen, conservationist at BirdLife South Africa and the mastermind behind the new colony. African penguins generally breed at the colony where they hatched. So that's one of the challenges that we're going to have to overcome in getting penguins to breed at these new sites. Christina's plan involves a little trickery. Penguins tend to do things together, so we're going to basically try and trick the penguins into thinking there's already a colony at the site. So to do that we'll use decoys, so lifelike models of penguins, and also we'll play sound recordings, so penguin calls uh, broadcast on speakers so that it looks and sounds like a penguin colony. Using decoys to attract nesting birds is not actually a new idea. Usually, the decoys aren't very realistic. Something approximately the right shape and near enough the right colours seems to do the trick. But there's a lot riding on this attempt, and Christina is going the extra mile. We've been working with Rolf Darling, a local Cape Town artist, to make the decoys, and 
because he's an artist, he's been really keen to actually capture the, the essence and make the decoys as, as lifelike as possible. For me, I wanted to be a bit more sculptural. That's why I spend so much time on making it super realistic. I also sculpted them with their eyes half closed so that they look relaxed because when they are relaxed, the ones around them feel safer. So I've had to kind of hold them back from putting too much detail in. I made them fatter to feel like they're in a healthy ocean with a lot of fish and krill to eat. It's great to be working with someone who's so excited about the project and has created what I think is a, a great decoy. To be honest, I think they're too realistic. Everyone says that. I mean, all the scientists that I spoke to is like, ah, don't worry, the penguins won't notice the difference. But, you know, rather be safe than sorry. This is a very ambitious project, and it's, it's quite scary in a way, but it's also quite exciting, the fact that it hasn't been done before. But it is an indication of quite how dire this situation is. I find it mind-boggling that people in Cape Town don't actually know the plight of the penguins. They're, you know, a 40-minute drive from the center of Cape Town. If you tell them that the penguin is endangered, they won't know about it. What is certain is that we need to act now if we want to try and save the species at all. The penguins don't need to die before we do something. This separation of that science, this is art, it doesn't have to be so strict. You know, art can have a direct influence on conservation. We mustn't really shoot down these crazy ideas because they might just be the only way we're going to save species eventually. Rolf's hyper-realistic sculptural decoys were set up earlier this month, in time for penguin breeding season. And if you want to hear how they got on, keep listening. I'll give you an update as soon as I know later in the series. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the BBC Earth podcast. And this is the sound of the concrete basement bike stall at my office last week around 8.30pm. Yeah, I know, check me out, I was working late. It was fully dark outside, a clear, quiet night. And this is the sound of a robin, up way past his bedtime, singing his heart out into the darkness. Now, I'm not much of a twitcher, I didn't actually know this was a robin. I had to ask this guy. It's a robin. 
I didn't know what it was. I thought it might be a blackbird. I think it's a robin. That's Andy Radford. I'm a professor of behavioural ecology at the University of Bristol. And if his voice sounds familiar, it's because he popped up in the first series, explaining the weird wonder of the dawn chorus. Why was that bird singing? They're doing it because of the artificial light. Normally they wouldn't, so they'll shut up when it gets dark. And what artificial light is doing inside cities is to change that rhythm of the day. You can hear birds singing right in the middle of the night sometimes now in particularly brightly lit areas. Andy's an expert in the way animals deal with anthropogenic factors, which is a fancy way of saying our stuff. The bright lights, the loud noises and the weird smells, the buildings and the constant busyness that we put into the world. Bright lights might keep animals up late, but it's anthropogenic noise that interests Andy the most. When it comes to noise, noise could come across as something threatening in its own right, or it could mask other acoustic signals or cues. That might be in terms of song, where you're trying to hear a rival or hear someone you want to be attracted towards. It might be because you can't hear your young and how hungry they are. We've done lots of experiments, for example, on fish, common species like sticklebacks in terms of their foraging. Either because they're stressed and or because they're distracted make more mistakes when there's noise than when there's not. And it's not just the animals. There are even consequences for urban-dwelling plants. So the plant itself might not be affected by the noise, but if your pollinator or your seed disperser avoids a noisy area, then all of a sudden you suffer the consequences as well. This is a brilliant example of (laughs) masking or distraction (laughs) from the aircraft going overhead. A wild species of radio producer, it is a real problem, I'm telling you. But lots of animals have developed pretty clever ways of adapting to the noise pollution around them. Certain bird species sing at a higher pitch when they're in urban environments than they are in rural environments. That's been found in lots of species, so blackbirds, for example, great tits. But it's not just about the pitch. So robins start singing earlier in the day to avoid peaks in man-made noise. So like really, Russia? Uh, yeah, like Russia, also at airports. So near airports, you sometimes now find that the dawn chorus has shifted earlier so that they get that in before the aircraft noise starts out in a given day. Another general thing about successful urban adapters is that they are often good problem solvers. And the corvids, so the crows, the jackdaws, are really good at this. Fairly famously now, there are the carrion crows in Japan that are using traffic to crack Japanese walnuts. The crows are waiting at intersections, waiting until the red lights go, flying down and placing the walnuts in front of traffic, getting out of the way before the green light, and then hoping that the cars crush the nuts. We would think, well, traffic's bad news. It's a noise pollutant, it's a light pollutant, there's a possibility of collisions. But they found a way to use it to their own advantage. What starts as a simple change in behaviour, choosing to sing higher or for longer, gradually, through the magic of evolution, could actually end up changing urban species for good. One of the big pressures in an urban environment comes from traffic. So if you want to get off the ground really, really quickly, you want short, rounded, stubby-type wings. And what's been found in things like starlings and cliff swallows, when you compare the wing dimensions of roadkill cliff swallows with those that haven't been killed, the roadkill ones have the longer 
less rounded wing shapes. Survival of the fittest in very visible action. It is, absolutely. A group of lizards called the Anolis lizards have sticky pads on their toes in order to stick to the tree and urban populations have longer limbs and they have more lamellae on the bases of their toes. These are the things that allow them to stick to the surface. This is likely to be an evolution to living in an urban environment. You can rail for as long as you like about you know, the increasing human population and the spread of urbanisation and roads and things. But it's going to keep happening. You've almost got to try and embrace that and what the opportunities are and to see the positives in what's going on. Don't get me wrong, I, there are lots of bad things you know, about lots of what we do, but there are species that are making more than a go of it, are being highly successful in these kind of environments. And there are also lots of things that we can do. You know, there's the building of roof gardens. You can change the type of bulbing that's used in streetlights. You can build bridges for wildlife to cross or tunnels for them to go through. We're never going to go back to, you know, pristine habitat all over the world and hardly any humans. So we've got to do what we can, given the starting point right now. For many of us, urban wildlife is something to take or leave. Watch the birds if you feel like it, maybe see a fox now and then late at night. But generally, if you leave them alone, they're going to stay well away from you. But some animals are a little harder to ignore. Harar in Ethiopia is famous for resident hyenas. Giant water monitors bask in plain sight in Bangkok and don't wander too far at night in Mumbai, or you might just bump into a leopard. And right now, all over North America, black bears are beginning to emerge from their long winter sleep. I saw a bear one time down on the corner of the intersection of uh, Biltmore Avenue and Charlotte Street, which is right downtown. And you have to understand that there's a hill just beside of town, so he's really just crossing from a wooded area to a wooded area. So. People will all gather around it. Cars will stop. Everybody wants to take pictures. And the bear gets afraid. The bear climbs up in a tree. And now you have a bear up in a tree in downtown Asheville. <laughs> and so as a result, more people will gather around to take pictures. And the more people that are there, the more afraid the bear is. And he really just wants to be left alone. He wants to go back up on the hill up into the woods. So the police will have to come and they'll have to block off traffic. They'll have to secure an area to where the bear will just be left alone and feel safe to be able to come back down out of the tree and go on its way. My name is William Withers and I have lived in Asheville for almost 20 years. My wife and I have a small farm on the northern edge of Asheville. It's called Lucky W Farm. You'll find Ashevillians love to talk about bears. We have this fear-love relationship with them, and we really love bears. It's, what, it's who we are here in Asheville. Since you have a city that is nestled here in the mountains with bears around them, you have this perfect place for bears to be able to live in a natural habitat, but at the same time interact with humans. We probably saw our first bear maybe 10 years ago, and now we see them regularly. One year we counted 13 different bears across our property. Usually we'll hear our dogs barking, and then you'll see a bear sleuthing through the woods. 
My wife has been charged by bear before. He's probably eaten 35 to 50 chickens. On the other side of my house, he's climbing up over my porch. I jump out the kitchen, pump the air horn just real loud. I'm arm's length from him, just sitting like a Buddha. You know, it's the kind of thing that will make your hair stand up on the back of your neck. It's one thing to see a bear 10 or 20 yards off, but when you have one that is staring at you and coming towards you, it does something to you deep down in your soul. (laughs) And, And it's... It's one of those things that's very exciting after it's over to be <laughs> to be able to tell people about. But while it's happening, your life is about to end. <laughs> when wildlife is no longer wild, they, they become dangerous. They become dangerous to people. They become dangerous to themselves. One of the most common causes of bear deaths in this country is being hit by a car. And so one of my goals as a homeowner, as a landowner, is to do what I can to keep wild things wild. If I see one that is not behaving wildly, I want it to be afraid of me. I saw a a mom and cubs pulling out some trash from a trash can, and they were right there on the side of the road. And I saw a car whiz by in front of me while she was crossing the street, and she spun around real quick. She sort of got brushed on her rump by the front fender, and then she spun around and tried to bite the back fender of the car as it breezed past her. And then she has three cubs right there. This just, it's a recipe for disaster for the bear. So I turned around, I went back, and I rolled down my window. I started yelling at them. I honk my horn, honk my horn. She runs up in the woods across the street, and then three babies follow her soon after. It's something that you never really get used to. I could see a hundred bears and see uh, my hundred first bear and it would still be just as magic to watch him. You would think that they would be just sort of a matted, greasy animal, but they are fluffy and clean and alive and wild. There was this fallen log that is about 40, 50 feet from the house, and it has this canopy of ivy growing over top of it, almost like a tent. My wife sees this hole, and she looks back in the hole, and she can see this black bear rump, kind of like Winnie the Pooh, sticking out of this hole. And she could see that there was a radio collar on this bear. So she backs away slowly and says, oh my goodness, she's got a den in there. She sends a a message to the wildlife biologists because we're part of this urban bear study in Asheville, and uh, they have a Facebook page. And they respond back, and they say, yeah, that's bear number N006, and she moved onto your property a week ago. We're not afraid of the fact. We're pretty excited about the fact that they're on our property. We decide when we play with our dogs in the yard, we're at a different part of the yard now, and we don't frequent that area. And... You know, we set up a camera to get pictures, uh, a game camera, to where we can get discreet pictures of the mom. And so she ends up having three cubs right there close to our house, and it was just an unbelievable experience. The biologist came out and uh, sedated the mom, changed her radio collar, got DNA samples of the babies, weighed, measured them, we held them to keep them warm. To be able to, uh, to hold those babies while the mom, it was, uh, it was unbelievable. Had my wife not seen her that day, I think they would have been there the entire three months and we would have never known it. And it was literally 40, 50, 60 feet max from our house. 
Whether you live in a concrete jungle or somewhere a little more rural, you probably still spend a good deal of your time behind walls and under roofs. We're forever building barriers between what we think of as ours and the rest of the world out there beyond. That's why it can feel so thrilling to catch a glimpse of something wild just outside your window. It feels like just for a moment, two completely separate worlds are colliding. But of course, that separation is really only in our heads. Our world and the natural world are one and the same. Think for a minute of your back garden. There are earthworms deep in the soil, which will live and die full, rich earthworm lives without ever crossing your path. Predators and prey do battle in the undergrowth, invisible to you. Everywhere, songs are being sung, young are being raised, tiny hearts are beating, probably mere metres from yours right now. Even in the middle of the biggest cities, you'll see the natural world is never really far away. It folds itself around us, adapting to the shape we make and tucking in around the edges, like a blanket on a cold night. Thank you for listening to the BBC Earth podcast. I'm Emily Knight. If you'd like to continue exploring nature, science and the human experience, sign up to our email newsletter. We'll bring you all the latest stories and videos from BBC Earth delivered direct to your inbox. Sign up at bbcearth.com slash newsletter and never miss a moment. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,